It's the Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Ray White, the largest real estate and property group in Australasia. And welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Podcast. We're talking with Brendan Coates, the Economic Policy Program Director at Grattan Institute, where he leads Grattan's work on tax and transfer system reform, retirement incomes and superannuation, housing, macroeconomics and migration. G'day, Brendan. Welcome into the Real Estate Podcast. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. Bit of a job description there, right? Eh? It no doubt keeps you pretty busy, I guess, in the times that we live in. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the, the strength of having such a broad body of research is that you can see the interconnections between things. So housing is a classic case in point where it does have bearings on retirement incomes, on the macro economy, migration matters as well. Uh, but yeah, it can get pretty hectic at times and it has been pretty busy heading into the first couple of months of this year. Gosh, I mean, how busy were you last year? Yeah, COVID was um, particularly full on. Um, we were also looking for a house, which we actually bought. So um, if you're thinking of the prototype of someone who's decided for the larger house in order to um, have the home office, you know, we are literally, we've been living the experience of the housing market in the last couple of years. Well, late last year in December, the Grattan Institute did a submission to the Department of Home Affairs planning for Australia's 2022 and 2023 migration program. What I thought would be of interest to our listeners on the podcast is the forecast regarding migration affecting the housing market, which is just such an all-encompassing one, isn't it? No, that's right. So obviously, you know, migration, like so many other factors, does affect housing affordability. Migrants, when they come to Australia, um, they bring a lot of benefits. They tend to raise the incomes of Australians. They don't tend to have a big impact on the wages of Australians. If anything, the empirical, the academic research tends to suggest that skilled migration in particular tends to raise the wages of Australians, but they also add to housing demand. And that does mean that they probably do lead to house prices and rents being higher than otherwise. So some of the work that we've looked at, which is actually picking up on work from the Reserve Bank of Australia from a couple of years ago, says that you know, the boost to migration since 2005, so the increase in the numbers, has probably led to house prices and rents being about 9% higher by 2018 than they otherwise would have been. So over a decade, you know, house prices in Melbourne and Sydney have risen by something like 70%. About 10% of that is probably because of migration. In terms of migrants, it's all really about getting the, the skilled ones in, right? Is there a threshold in terms of preference that you'd like to see in terms of income levels? Now, that's right. So when we the work we've done so far is on the permanent program, so giving people the permanent right to remain in Australia, so to, to get permanent residency. At the moment, the system works reasonably well for skilled migration, but it could work better. And the number one thing that we think uh, should change is that the way we select permanent skilled migrants should change. So instead of you know having a list of occupations that we think are in shortage, when it's really hard to get any decent data on you know the wages of individual occupations, we should instead be thinking, well, the best measure of skill is someone's wage. And if an employer is willing to pay someone at least $80,000 a year, which is median full-time wages... Uh, then they should be able to sponsor that person for permanent residency. And we think that would make a big difference, both in the short term to who comes as a skilled migrant, but particularly in the long term, because people who come to Australia as skilled migrants, as permanent residents, they stay for the rest of their lives. And so they have an enormous impact on on our community and our society over the course of the following 56 years. And if if we can raise the levels of income that they have, so that they were bringing more skilled migrants to Australia, then that has huge flow on benefits to the rest of the population. 
Yeah, that's an interesting statistic. And of course, owning a home is a statistic that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, which at the moment is in decline. And 30 years ago, if you had a reasonable job, most people could manage to get into their first home. However, these days, it very much depends on who your parents are for that all-important word around those trying to get into the property market, and that word is leverage. And if your parents can't help you leverage into your first home, well, that is going to be extremely difficult. And that's something that even, you know, 20 years ago would seem foreign back then. Yeah, so the housing market's changed a lot in the last 30 years. So 30 years ago, you know, interest rates were at 17%. Now, you know, the cash rate's at 0.1%. We just secured a mortgage for less than 2%. It is just a different world. Now, the consequence of that is, on some measures, housing is more affordable because the younger Australians can, can borrow cheaply and so they can borrow more. And that's one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason house prices have risen. But a corollary to that is that if you don't have, as you say, parents that can help you out with that deposit, uh, then you're in a lot of trouble. And that's what we see, you know, the deposit to save for the average income earner in, say, Melbourne and Sydney to save to buy the average house. You're talking about saving 15, 20% of your income for a decade. And by then, often housing prices have jumped further away from you. So that's why house, housing affordability, home ownership has actually fallen off a cliff for younger, particularly poor Australians, particularly the poorest 40%. So if you go back 30 years, regardless of your income, if you were younger, you tended to be able to buy a house irrespective of whether you're a high income or low income, but it has just crashed for the bottom 40%. And the problem there is, of course, that if you don't own your own home by the time you say 35, 40, then you're getting to the point where you're going to struggle to pay off the mortgage by the time you hopefully plan to retire at sort of 65, 70. And that cohort, if they, if we don't get them into home ownership, then they're probably going to be renters in retirement. And we know that the, that if you rent in retirement, you're actually at severe risk of financial stress. If you're a homeowner in retirement, even if you're a full age pensioner, you're not receiving, you don't have a lot of superannuation or other savings, you tend to do okay. But if you're a renter, you're in a lot of trouble. Well, let's just have a look at that because the impact of not owning a home when retiring is becoming that increasing problem. And years ago, as you say, when buying a home, when the ratio was two to three times the median incomes and now buying a property is set against 10 times the median income or in Sydney, 15 times. Back then, if you were 45 years of age and you maybe bought a business and secured that against the assets of your home, and then the business failed, you could probably get back up on the bike. But now, if you're at that age 45, 50, tragically, you might never, ever become a homeowner again. And that's a real social impact for people in this position, and of course, for the rest of, I guess, Australia. I think that's right. And I think the, the outcome of that is people will probably take on fewer risks. So if you're sitting there with a large mortgage, you know, as we now are, it naturally makes you more risk adverse than what you otherwise would be. Because if the business does fail and you lose your home, then you're right, you will struggle to rebuild that equity and be able to have a home that you've broadly paid off by the time you retire, even if you use a little bit of your superannuation to do it. And so I suspect a really understudied problem with worsening housing affordability in Australia and elsewhere is that fewer people will take those risks to start businesses, to take on a new idea. And that, I think, leaves us all poorer. The other way it really plays out, and we've seen this when in looking for houses recently, is uh, almost every house that we went to buy was a separation because we're looking for a family home. The time when people sell those, particularly in, say, Melbourne, 
is either normally when you downsize. And the only time you sell it beforehand is if something often goes wrong. And the problem there is if you do separate, the family home is the world's, is the, the household's largest asset. Uh, you've got to split it. And what that means that people fall out of home ownership and they often, in, particularly for women in most cases, don't get back in. And which is why we see growing rates of poverty amongst older single women, growing rates of homelessness. And I think that's another part of the problem, piece of the problem we need to think more about too. And accessing super, I mean, this can be sort of fraught with danger depending on what age you are at. But I'm guessing if you're a little bit older, accessing super to help buy your home, that's not a bad sort of a position to go down. Yeah. And so when in a previous job, I worked for the World Bank. And when I left, the World Bank actually paid me out my superannuation from the World Bank and I used it to buy a house. And that was fantastic. But the key was I was the only person who was doing that. So I got the leg up in terms of my my deposit, but not everyone else I was competing with was in the same boat. Because the concern always was something like super for housing, allowing people to access their compulsory super contributions, the 10% of their wage that's saved in the super each year, is that it'll just increase purchasing power and people will go out and they'll you know, they'll bid up the price of houses and vendors, people selling those homes will be the main beneficiaries. I think you hit the nail on the head though, the cohort for whom I would be most open to allowing access to super is those that are say over the age of 40 or 45. If you haven't bought a house out of the money that you're earning in your own pocket and maybe any family support you've got, then perhaps in that world, you should be able to access your super because at that point, your superannuation is often you know, not an insubstantial amount of money. You know, it can be forty, fifty, eighty thousand dollars, and it would be better for you to use that money to buy a house and then have some confidence you might be able to pay it off by the time you retire, than to get to retirement not having bought a house and then find yourself in a situation where your superannuation doesn't cover your rent. Hey, Brendan, that is some great advice. And thank you so much for coming on to the Real Estate Podcast and explaining some of that. No doubt we'll get you back at another time. Thank you very much. We connect you to the best real estate information across Australia. The Real Estate Podcast. 